pray. Father, you have drawn us together into a body of believers, the body of Christ known as the church. You call us to be united in you with you as the head. And yet we come this morning admitting that we have not always been a united church. We have not always been people who have been pulling together for the purposes for which you have created us. And so today we pray that as you guide us by your word, that you would teach us uh, what to do to avoid disunity, what to do to keep us unified. We pray it in your son's precious name. Amen. The question is, what is the church? Some of you were raised like I was. You probably were raised learning this. You know, here is the church. Here is the steeple. Open the doors. Look at all the people. Or we learned, you know, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, where's the people? Oh, it's Saturday. Uh, but maybe you also grew up learning that little song that was, I am the church, you are the church, we are the church, together. It's wonderful words. But the question is, what is the church? I mean, when we talk about a church, what are we talking about? Well, in the Greek language, the word for church is ekklesia. You probably think that sounds a little bit familiar, you know, ecclesiastical, or like the book of Ecclesiastes, but here it's ecclesia. It means the called out of God. Now, in the days of the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Corinthians, uh, anytime a Roman city had a, a town hall meeting, a congregation meeting, if you will, uh, the ecclesia the would come together. Those called out would come together. These were the ones who were called out to conduct the business of the town. Now, that word ecclesia was carried over into uh, the New Testament to designate the church. But it's kind of interesting that every time you see the word church in the New Testament, that word ecclesia, it is used three different ways. For example, it is used to designate all the redeemed that belong to Christ. In other words, like all the Christians... In fact, one dictionary I found said it denotes the whole body of the redeemed, all those whom the Father has given to Christ, the invisible Catholic Church. Now, before you get too excited, Catholic here means universal. So the church is everybody that we can in the world that is a Christian, whether we can identify them or not. And in Ephesians, it says Christ is the head of the church, and we are part then of that body of Christ. But sometimes that word is used to designate a small group of believers. For example, in Romans 16, it says, Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So every Christian who's part of the church, universal, can also be a part of a small group of believers like First Lutheran Church. It's a gathering of people. It was also used to designate all the believers in one city, whether they gathered in one place to worship or not. For example, in, in that day, if we live back in the days of Paul, and we were to get a letter, like the Corinthian church got a letter, it might be addressed to the churches in Texarkana, or it might be the first book of, Bo of Bowie County. I don't know what they would call it. Let's just call it to the churches in Texarkana. It would be for every last person who is a Christian 
living in our area who believes in the name of Jesus. So the church, no matter how you define it, all the people in the world who believe in Jesus, whether it's a small local gathering or maybe it's a, a specific geographical group, is a wonderful thing. In fact, a lot of people say it's the church that's truly the hope of this world. Now, I know what you're going to say. Well, isn't Jesus the hope of the world? But yet Jesus has called the church to be his hope in the world. We are to be the salt of the earth. We are to be the light of this world. And if the church doesn't do its job, guess what? It all falls down. The church is a wonderful thing. I have been a part of a church my entire life. You know, from the day I was baptized into the Christian faith at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Lakewood, Colorado, through my days at St. John's in Seward, Nebraska, and St. John's in Peru, Indiana, and St. John's again in Decatur, Illinois, and uh, Church of All Nations in, in Hong Kong, all the way up to First Lutheran Church. Wonderful churches. They've all done wonderful things when they got along, when they were unified. Sad to say, I've been in churches that didn't always get along. I've been in a church already where the pastor and the elders didn't get along. The elders did everything they could to trip up the pastor. And the pastor would preach about them on Sunday. <laughs> Nasty business. Sometimes the church gets in trouble. They find themselves embroiled in the midst of something that even gets to the point of wanting to tear their membership apart. And it is something that God hates. God hates division in the church. God hates this lack of unity. And I don't know that there's anything more destructive to the church than when we choose up sides or when we have divisions. And you know what? We still see it on our own day. And not only with our confusing array of denominations. I mean, good grief, even the Lutherans can't get along. There are something like 26 different kinds of Lutherans in the United States alone. I mean, you'd think we could get along. See, not only with that confusing array of denominations, but even within denominations, like the Lutheran Church, Missouri Center, even we can't get along sometimes. We get polarized. And, you know, are you conservative? Are you liberal? Do you wear robes? Do you not wear robes? Do you have, con you have contemporary worship? Do you have traditional worship? You know, we can't even get along with each other. I pastored a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod, in the town that had three other Missouri Synod Lutheran churches, and I swear some people were in every one. They'd be in one until they got cranky, they'd move on, they'd move to the next church, they'd get cranky, they'd move on to the next one. They just kind of keep moving around. Couldn't get along with anybody. We should have had a church especially for them, the first church of crankiness. But that would not do God any service either. See, not only is it impossible to work effectively when people are not pulling in the same direction, but you know, that factionalism, when we choose up sides, when we can't get along, that in itself creates confusion for the very same people that we so desperately desire to share the hope that is within us. I'll be honest with you, divisions really make us look dumb. They make us look silly when we can't get along. But you know what Jimmy read to you before? That church had its problems. They had similar issues. They were divided. Some people said, well, I claim allegiance to Paul. 
Some said, well, no, I'm Apollos. Others said to Cephas, that's Peter. Some claimed to have special knowledge that gave them freedom and power. They were called the Gnostics, the know-it-alls. I mean, they kind of ridiculed everybody else who didn't know as much as they did. Kind of makes me think, we still have that sometime. You know, we, uh, I remember coming to a church one time where on my first Sunday, I stood at the door to greet people, and, and the first guy out, I put out my hand to shake his hand. He didn't even shake my hand. And he said, in reference to the guy who had been ahead of me there for 25 years, he said, well, you're no pastor so-and-so. To which I said, thank you. I'm not. I'm not. Don't pretend to be. I remember having a future conversation with him, and I said, I know you love that guy. You had to. He was there for 25 years, for heaven's sakes. He married you. He buried you. He baptized you. You ought to love him. But if you ever find just a little bit extra love left over, would you mind sharing it with me? I remember his response. Hmm. That was his initial response. (laughs) But, you know, by the time I left that church, he used to give me a hug every Sunday. I remember the first Sunday he came out, he stood there in front of me. He said, I got a little left over. (laughs) It was like hugging a post. Well, what's the church to do? To either avoid disunity, or what does a church have to do in order to get over it? I just want to share three things from what Paul had to say. Here's the very first thing. We need to focus on the Messiah. I mean, that takes care of all kinds of things. If we can just focus on Jesus. As Paul began to talk about this Corinthian church and some of the problems of division, he began by asserting the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might wonder why he uses that phrase, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because Paul was speaking in his place as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the role assigned to him in that church by God, Paul spoke with authority to the church. It's as if, like if I were today, I'd say, friends, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have something to say to you. God has placed a call on my life, and God wants me to say this to you. That's why Paul starts that way. Now, understand, it wasn't Paul's authority. Paul wasn't saying, because I'm the pastor. He wasn't saying, because I'm the apostle. He said the authority was the word of God, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he wanted to have them focus their attention again, not on all kinds of nonsense, but instead to focus their devotion and true allegiance where it really belonged, on Jesus Christ. Now, the allegiance of a church, I don't care what kind of church it is, whether it's Catholic or Lutheran or Methodist or whatever, non-denominational, the allegiance of the church does not lie with the pastor. Even though a pastor has a very unique role to play and he's got a responsibility that's been assigned by God's call on his life, Your allegiance does not belong to the pastor. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. The allegiance of the church does not lie with a few select members, like a board of elders or like the leadership board that we're going to elect in a week or so. But it lies with Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. Now, in verse 13 that Jimmy shared before, there were three rather probing questions asked. The first question was, is Christ divided? The second question is, was Paul crucified for you? 
And the third question was, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, the answer to those same questions is the same. It's no. No, Christ is not divided. I mean, Christ doesn't live any more in this church than he does in any other Christian church. I don't know of any pastor who's ever been crucified for his people. I know a few churches who've crucified their pastor. Not literally. <laughs> and I don't know, um, when I baptized your baby, I don't know if I said I baptized him in the name of Dr. Cole. But I'm sure I said in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's just the way it works. Christ is not divided. Paul didn't die for you. We were not baptized in somebody's name. I mean, baptism, we are identified with who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what happens when you lose sight of the Savior? What happens when you lose sight of Jesus? Well, we get our eyes on other people. That's what happened in Corinth. They lost sight of the Lord. They began to focus on personalities uh, rather than the person who saved them. They began to focus on the problems they had. Uh, I always think this is kind of interesting that a lot of churches who start focusing on financial problems, we don't have enough money, you know, oh, woe is us, we're going down. The they get their eyes on money, and their eyes somehow have lost their focus on the Lord, who quite honestly doesn't need your money, and who promises to supply all of your needs. Sometimes they begin to argue and fuss and fight with each other. In fact, Paul said it got so bad in that church, they actually took one another to court. Can you believe that? Christian brothers and sisters suing one another. And Paul said, man, can't you guys just get your eyes on Jesus and get along with each other? Now, eventually, the priorities of the Corinthian believers became what they desired. They began to live according to their fleshly appetites rather than spiritual people. And this led to all kinds of abuses. In fact, one of the things it led to was the abuse of the Lord's Supper. Now, they didn't celebrate communion the way we did. Now, if you can imagine if we celebrated communion the way they did back in the days of Paul, we would be gathering down the fellowship hall around tables. And you would have all brought food, kind of like a potluck. And during the course of the potluck, there would be bread and there would be wine and communion would be celebrated as part of that service. Sounds pretty nice so far. But guess what? When people began getting cranky with each other, guess what? I brought my green bean casserole, and Mary, I'm not sharing with you. And you know why? It's because you didn't say hello to me. And Mary would look at Nancy and go, and Nancy, don't you touch the, the meat I brought because you weren't nice to me the other day. And, and that's what happened. They, they were bringing food, but they weren't sharing with people. And anybody who failed to bring anything, they said, well, hold on, you didn't bring anything. You can't eat our food. You've got to... You know, you sit there, bring food next time. And on top of that, they began starting to drink all the wine, and the next thing you know, they were sitting around drunk. And Paul says, how did that happen? Well, I'll tell you how it happened. They took their eyes off of Jesus, and they started putting their eyes on other stuff. Now, just like in the book of Hebrews, the, we talked about this last week, how as believers run this great, great race, we are to throw off anything that... Set, holds us back. We are to look at Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We are to run the race set before us, but the only way you win the race is by what? Keeping your eyes on the prize. You keep your eyes on Jesus, who the Bible says endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down now at the right hand of God. I think all of us, 
need to hear words like this from time to time so that we all run the same race. We can't do what God's called the church to do if some of us are running with our eyes on the prize and other people are running around with their eyes back here and, you know, looking at other people and wondering why, you know, James isn't running as fast as me or why James, you know, whatever. We, we can't do that. We've got to all pull together. And so our race of faithfulness, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We talked last week about chapter 11 of Hebrews 2, that great hall of faith. And... and no one comes close to Jesus' example. I mean, and whether you speak of Moses or Abraham or any other prophet, you find none of these, no matter how great their walk was with God, it didn't match the Lord's. So if you ever feel that your race is too difficult in life, look to Jesus. I mean, never set another person up on a pedestal. I mean, never set a pastor or a preacher up as the one you ultimately look to. Look to Jesus. Now, I know that we who are pastors and leaders are supposed to be good examples for you, but you're always going to find fault with other human beings. Uh, you're going to always find fault with other mortal people, but you will never, ever find fault in Jesus. And the truth is, the book of Hebrews says there's no match for the Lord. A lot of people argue who the greatest is. I, I was reading an article this last week. They asked the question, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? And overwhelmingly, the response was Michael Jordan. Then they asked, who is the greatest boxer of all time? And the number one answer was Muhammad Ali. Uh, the third question was interesting in the mix of this was, who's the greatest preacher of all time? And uh, momentarily, I was stunned to see my name not in the list. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but number one was Charles Spurgeon. And some of you have no idea who Charles Spurgeon is. But, you know, as great as Michael Jordan, as great as Muhammad Ali, as great as Charles Spurgeon was or is, there will always be someone out there who will eventually become better. But no one will ever be better than Jesus. He's always going to be the best. So here's the second thing we need to do. We need to focus on our mission. See, if our focus was upon Jesus then our focus would be on the mission Jesus has given the church. Now, Paul points out that the Great Commission is really not to baptize, but really to preach the gospel. He says, you've got to go and make disciples. And then, as they're discipled, you, you baptize them. He's not speaking against infant baptism or anything, but he's, he's talking about we need to go out and disciple people. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Paul states his mission in precise terms. Paul's call was to preach the gospel. His mission was to gospelize, not to baptize. I think about my recent trip to Haiti. My calling there was to gospelize, if you will, if there's such a word. My call really wasn't to baptize. Uh, the gospel is the death of Jesus, according to the Bible. It's the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, according to the Bible. We need to be about telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Guess what? If we are not unified, that message doesn't get out. In, in fact, there's nothing worse than a church divided because everybody says if those folks can't get together and they say they believe in Jesus, how is it possible for anybody else? Why would we be interested? We have one calling. Uh, you can find that call all the way through the Bible. 
In Matthew, it says, go and make disciples. Mark says the same thing, go and make disciples. Luke says the same thing. John says the same thing. Acts chapter 1 says, you know, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will go to where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to go and make disciples. You keep your eyes on the Messiah, and you also keep your eye on the mission. Sometimes churches get way off track when it comes to the mission. They forget why they are there. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, sometimes we have a great and wonderful program that we want, and we run it for who? Ourselves. Okay, that's nice. Nice to get together and fellowship. But what about designing something that would actually bring unbelievers in to attract them? Not other church people. We're not try trying to swap fish between aquariums. You know, we're not trying to gather all the sheep that are around. Maybe we ought to go out and try to find a few goats from time to time. You know, why? We have to ask ourselves, why do we do what we do? Are we eyes on the Messiah? Do we have our eyes on the mission? Are we looking to help disciple people? Here's the third part of this. We need to focus on the message. The Messiah, the mission, the message. Now, the mission of the church is not necessarily to proclaim the latest and the greatest fad or fashion, but to preach Christ and him crucified. That's the only message that will do this world any good. I mean, Paul have met, may have been looked up, looked at as a fool by the world for preaching Christ, but he would have rather been a fool in the eyes of the world and wise in the eyes of God. Uh, I would say the same thing. I mean, what else would we preach unless we preach the cross of Christ? I know that there are people in the world who consider Christians to be rather foolish for believing the Bible. There are some people in this world who believe we are foolish for preaching that Jesus is the one and only way for a person to be saved. In fact, I ran across one of those kind of people not too long ago who said, I just can't believe you're dumb enough to believe that Jesus is the one and only way. But that's okay. I would rather enter heaven foolish than to go to hell considered to be wise by the world. And I would hope that the same would be true for, for you as well. Are we going to transform our culture, or are we going to allow our culture to transform us? See, in Corinth, the entertainment choice of the day was to go and listen to an eloquent speaker. They liked somebody who would tickle their ears with a fancy speech. Uh, Paul's task was not to go and entertain people. It was not to wow the crowds with some grand oratorical skills, but rather to preach the cross, to preach Christ and him crucified. He didn't want to draw any attention to anything else other than the message, the good news, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into this world that if we believe, we will not perish but have eternal life. It's my prayer each and every week and I know I need to preach it every, every week, or I need to pray it every week, because I know how easy it is to do things that will draw attention away from the message, and maybe on myself or other things. But I just pray continually that we do nothing that takes away from the central message of the gospel, that we be known as a church that has our eyes on the Messiah, that we be known as a church that has a mission, that we become known as a church that has a message. In your worship folder, it talks about our mission statement. 
the FLC-3. Every time I look at this, I ask myself the same questions. You know what that is? It says, faithfully loving Christ. My question is, how? How are we going to do it? How do we faithfully love Christ? Well, maybe a couple simple answers. Keep our eyes on him. Uh, do what he asks us to do and share the message of Christ. Faithfully learning Christ. My question again is, how are we going to do it? Well, I'll give you some answers. Part of it is coming to church, coming to worship, hearing the word of God preached or read or spoken. Part of it is being in a Bible class. Part of it is having, having enough gumption of your own to take your own Bible to read it, to listen to it, to study it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, and actually put it into action. Faithfully living Christ, again, the question is, how are we going to do it? It's pretty easy to faithfully love Christ when we're all together and we all kind of believe the same thing. I'll tell you where it gets hard. It's the moment you walk out the front doors of this place, you drive off this little campus. You know, when you start walking back into the classrooms, when you go back out to the factories, when you go back into the marketplaces, you go back into businesses, you go back in your neighborhood, for some of you, even when you go back in your own homes, to faithfully love Christ, to love him the way he asks you to love him. Hopefully we'll never do anything to distract someone who's actually looking for Jesus. It's surprising how many people out there really are looking for him. I remember when we chose to come here three years ago, I looked at the demographics of Bowie County and Miller County, and it's interesting. It, uh, it, it says we've got something like 65, 70% of these two counties are churched. Well, uh, you know how that works. We have 450 members on our membership list. They claim to belong to First Lutheran Church. I feel like Jesus said to the lepers one time, where are the other nine? I just said, where are the other 300? It's a little bit more than just having your name on a list. There are a lot of people, though, out there who are actually looking for a place. They're looking for a place where they can come to know Jesus, where they can find help and strength to meet everyday journey. And hopefully we, we never proclaim anything else to the lost and the dying community than salvation through Jesus Christ. See, this age in which you and I live in today has a message of its own. And part of the message today that we hear preached continually on television and radio and the movies is, I guess we'd call moral relativism, that says there's really no such thing as absolute truth. Today, many people, whatever you believe to be true, is truth. No one likes to hear that the Bible is the final word. A lot of people today say there's no right or wrong. It's whatever I decide is right or wrong. That even enters Christian churches. <clears throat> I see it when someone says that it doesn't really matter what you believe as a Christian just as long as you're sincere. Well, I can tell you, you can be sincerely wrong. I can ask you this question. Is it more important that you are sincere in your beliefs than it is that what you believe is right? The answer is that it's important that what you believe is right, not according to what you think, not according to what the pastor thinks, but what the Bible says. See, the church has one Messiah, one Savior. The church has one mission, and that is to win and disciple our world. And the church has one message, and it's the message of the cross. The key verse in 1 Corinthians is probably chapter 2, verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
See, friends, that's what our neighbors need, and that's what we need to focus on. That's our mission, the cross of Christ. Now, Paul tells us, and he reminds us, that we are united by a cross, a proclamation that makes all factions pointless. I mean, how can some people claim allegiance to one side or another when Jesus died for the sins of the entire world? I've been a church consultant for a long time, studied churches. Churches are interesting things. They really are. I love churches. I love to walk into different churches. I, I just love to just see how they work. They're really interesting. They're made up of people who come together not because they have shared interests like a book club or a, a shared activity like a Toastmasters or a Rotary or Kiwanis. Actually, churches are made up of a whole bunch of people who might not otherwise ever choose to get together. But they do. And they get together for one reason. It's called the cross. The cross of Christ. That's what makes a diverse group of people unified. One Messiah, one mission, one message, the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray for unity, not just in this church, but for all the churches of the world. Churches that uh, would have unity, who would keep their eyes on you and not worry about all sorts of extraneous things, who would focus on the mission that you've called us to and would have this message, the powerful message of the cross. You've given us such a great task in this world and sometimes it seems very difficult, but we know that your promise, even as we heard this morning, is that you would be with us always, even to the end of the age. Lord, thank you for this place we call First Lutheran. We thank you for our shared faith. We thank you for our shared vision and mission. And we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may serve you faithfully, not just here, but throughout this world. In Jesus' name, amen.